0: Welcome to Good Fellow Podcasts. I'm Rachel Jones, a GP, and today I'm talking with Dr Toshton Stanley about the diagnosis and management of cow's milk protein allergy. Toshton is a consultant paediatrician at Wellington's Children's Hospital, and he runs the paediatric allergy service. He's a senior lecturer at the University of Otago, Wellington. Welcome, Toshton.
1: Uh, thank you. Nice to talk to you.
0: So in a nutshell, what is cow's milk protein allergy?
1: Uh, Well, this basically means uh, that a child is uh, sensitized uh, in the gastrointestinal tract to uh, cow's milk protein. There are a whole lot of different proteins in cow's milk, of course. Uh, The two main ones are uh, are casein and uh, lactoglobulin, but there are a number of others. And a child theoretically could be sensitized to any one of those. You could actually divide cow's milk protein allergy up even further from a point of view of symptoms into ones where the children uh, get their symptoms primarily from the gastrointestinal tract. So vomiting, uh, diarrhea, constipation, abdominal pain, bloating, gas, versus the ones that are the result of direct sensitization in the uh, oropharynx. And those children are going to present uh, in a more dramatic and immediate way um, with uh, um, urticaria and angioedema or swelling um, and that sort of thing, erythema. But in practice, uh, the children usually have a mixed picture, so um, I don't tend to divide them up very much. There is a, another small group, which are children that, uh, not necessarily small, which are, uh, have bad eczema. Uh, those children uh, will sometimes be uh, skin sensitized and they may have eczema around their mouths um, and they may come into contact with milk uh, on the skin around their mouths and end up getting hives as a result of that. And again, you could argue, is that really um, true allergy or, they, or are they just uh, giving themselves a big skin test uh, because they're putting the milk on broken skin? In the end, clinically, again, it doesn't matter because those children are also distressed. And uh, even if you don't call it a true allergy, it, it's it's equivalent and the the children still need to come off the milk protein. Hmm. The other thing is that uh, what is not so commonly recognized is, in fact, you said nutshell. This is not a nutshell, but um, uh, in fact, there there are at least two different mechanisms. In fact, there are at least three different mechanisms of milk allergy. The first one is the one I've described, which is IgE mediated and uh, is relatively immediate. Um, And uh, those children have positive IgE tests, so they would have a positive skin test for milk uh, and they may also have, uh, you should do also have a positive specific IgE in their bloodstream or RAST or CAP test. But there's another group of children who are much more challenging and those are children who have non-IgE mediated uh, cow's milk protein allergy. And uh, that's the group that often medical practitioners are a bit skeptical because it's not such an obvious thing going on, but the families are not skeptical and they're absolutely certain usually the link between the child's distress and the exposure to milk protein, those children uh, usually present with um, with more lower gut symptoms. Again, vomiting, they may present with uh, constipation, diarrhea, um, abdominal pain, blood in the stools, um, and uh, they often, uh, well, normally would not have a positive uh, test. So it's a much more of a challenge to work out what's going on with that group of children, and they're not as well described in the literature. And Certainly, the prevalence of this condition is totally unknown. There is a third group of children uh, which uh, caused me a lot of um, angst because they come and see me demanding a diagnosis. These are children who have very delayed milk protein um, sensitization and present in the form of um, eczema, or occasionally they may present with uh, joint symptoms or things like that, sort of slow inflammatory processes which are almost certainly cell mediated and they may take a day or two before they occur. So often in that group of children, uh, there's a long delay before the penny drops. I saw a child recently, the father actually got pretty upset that the diagnosis had been so delayed and this child had had an onset of constipation at six months of age when the child was first introduced to milk protein and was now two and a half years of age and had been on chronic uh, laxative therapy for two and a half years and failing laxative therapy and i did a test which i can't tell you about because it's not been published yet which was able to confirm that in fact this was non-IgE mediated milk protein that was causing the problem we took the child off milk protein and she's cured and has thrown away all the laxatives so that's angry. You'd he thought he'd be really happy, but he's actually angry that it's taken so long and has the laxative damage to her intestines for the last year or two. So as you can see, that sort of patient can be really challenging.
0: So how there's a variation between um, how long you would see a link between exposure and symptoms. Correct. Could it be immediate?
1: If it's Ig immediate, is it commonly is immediate? Well, immediate, like in five or 10 or 15 minutes, something like that those cases are really easy because the family very rapidly recognize the link and, and confirmation is very easy because you simply do a skin test and mm. you get a, a big wheel and you say, well, there you are. That's what it was. Mm. Um, I should add, there is an interesting component to this, of course, which is that calcium protein, of course, uh, the, the proteins are heat sensitive, so they can be altered by uh, heating. And the different ways of making formula may make the proteins less allergenic Uh, Most modern uh, formulae, the proteins are very gently handled and they're pretty raw. But Mm. uh, there might be some um, formulae the family get their hands on where the the milk has actually been uh, heat treated. I had thought that uh, UHT milk, which is um, ultra heat treated milk, would have the milk protein altered. But uh, I very recently learned that in fact, the way they make this, the ultra heat treatment is for only a second or two. Uh, And that's enough to make it long-life milk. Um, But the milk protein is actually hardly altered at all. So that's just as allergenic. So when I see a child with uh, immediate cow's milk protein allergy, the workup I do includes testing the child with a milk protein allergen that costs quite a lot of money and comes from a company in Denmark or somewhere. And, And then at the same time, I also skin test them with raw milk. And uh, there are not insignificant, I would say about 30, 40% of children show highly different responses to the allergen versus the fresh milk. And what that says to me is that those children who have a much smaller reaction to the allergen are much more likely to tolerate milk in heated form. That means baking it or boiling it, not ultra heat treatment, treatment, as I mentioned earlier, versus the ones who have just as big a reaction to both allergens. So that's a really interesting component to it that you need to know. Was it fresh milk or was it baked milk? But the diagnosis in that setting, is, to answer your question, is pretty straightforward. If you know what the thing was that caused it and it happened five or ten minutes ago, anyone could work it out.
0: Mm. Absolutely. And you've talked us through um, the general symptoms and clinical signs of cow's milk protein allergy. But what big red flags would really warrant an urgent urgent pediatric um, assessment.
1: Failure to thrive. Now that's going to be much more likely in the non-IgE mediated. The the IgE mediated ones, the children are not going to take the stuff because they get sick almost immediately. So they're not going to get into a chronic situation of uh, non-diagnosis. It's going to be the non-IgE mediated ones where that's going to occur. And red flags will be things like failure to thrive. Before you make a diagnosis of reflux, and and uh, I actually have a bit of a bee in the, my bonnet about it because I'm sorry I'm going to go slightly sideways here, but you may find this interesting because our microbiome, the, the, what keeps us healthy inside, is is really very much dependent on the types of germs that we ingest, and um, the germs that we ingest that are good for us are acid resistant. In other words, they have been designed to go through the upper GI tract, through the stomach, to be churned around in all that acid, and they survive and can still go on to um, locate themselves in our colon. If you give a patient something that stops them producing gastric acid, you essentially say to all the other germs, hey, come on in here. This is uh, unprotected territory now. The gate's wide open. We don't need to have the nice germs in here. We can put the nasty germs in there. So before you start turning off the acid in the baby, ask yourself, is this actually the right thing? Am I certain that acid is actually the cause of this baby's problem? I do pH probe studies uh, on the babies in the region, and I tell you, hardly any of them have got acid reflux. These so called silent refluxes. They've got something else. And it is possible that a group of those babies that come with grumpiness and look like they're colicky, that actually milk protein is the reason for it. So babies tolerate acid really well. But this condition, of course, uh, you'd need to exclude it, and the way you exclude it is by removing milk protein. And of course, a lot of these babies will be breastfed. And it, the may, unfortunately, for some stupid reason, it seems the gut is able to allow intact milk protein through into the bloodstream. We presume it must go into the bloodstream because it ends up in the breast milk. Mm. And <clears throat> mothers have been saying this for centuries you know, that if I eat something, it makes my baby unwell. But actually, it does happen. So so if you get that situation of a baby who's like that, it's very straightforward. You're only talking about two, three weeks and saying to mom, absolutely no milk protein all for two, three weeks. See if it makes a difference. Mm.
0: If it
1: makes a difference, then reintroduce it and see if the symptoms come back. And if they do, well, you've got a diagnosis. I'm slightly cynical about milk, I have to tell you. I know this is <laughs> probably a, this is probably a milk program, and I'm not supposed to say <laughs> anti-milk please, stuff. Please tell but, us, please. Uh, but but I'll, I'll just say that... that The the Southeast Asia, China and those sort of places, they didn't have cows. There were no cows. There was no milk. Those (laughs) people survived for millennia without any milk protein at all. It isn't an essential component. It's a good source of food, but you can find exactly the same things elsewhere. It's a handy source of food, but you shouldn't, you know, get really upset if you find that either you or your baby cannot take milk protein for a bit. You know, it's not a big thing. It's a small thing. It's handy, but that's not not essential. There are lots of other sources of calcium and everything else. So, but anyway, so, so that, that will be my thought that you were asking about red flags. I mean, red, other red flags, well, serious gastrointestinal uh, disturbance would be a red flag. And there, there is a, a serious form of non-IgE mediated uh, milk protein allergy, actually any sort of protein, but milk is one of the common ones. Other common ones are corn and rice and wheat. Interestingly, mm. the things that we give our babies, and this syndrome, which is called FPI syndrome, F P I E S, stands for Food Protein Induced Enterocolitis Syndrome. These babies, when they take the sort of protein, whatever it is, I'm sure everyone is, one of those or soy sometimes, they get really sick. They get, they look like they're going to shock. They get grossly distended abdomens. They pour huge amounts of fluid into their gut. They can go into hypovolemic uh, shock, and then they proceed to produce massive um, diarrhea. It, this condition, like many allergic conditions, is clearly getting commoner, and the child looked look like it got really sick with this. And I've had children who die, and in fact children have been described who've died of this condition, so it, it is serious. And unfortunately, as I said, because it's not IgE-mediated, there is a delay, but usually an hour or two between the exposure to the particular food and um, and the symptoms and okay first time round gastro probably seems the most likely diagnosis if it happens the second time you need to think very carefully is this baby being um, got an immune disturbance of some sort so so that'll be another red flag obviously but you have to think about it um, I I mean I think also I do occasionally see children with chronic disease processes where there seems to be a link to milk protein and I said that these children with things like sore joints or long-standing persistent rash, it looks like it's some sort of autoimmune disease. Most GPs are not going to see this, but it happens occasionally. And those obviously are also pretty serious and need to be taken um, with mm. some circumspection. Those are the three things that I think of. Mm.
0: So what key questions do we really need to be asking the parent or caregiver during the consultation? Is there a
1: relationship between the exposure to the milk and the symptoms? Have the symptoms occurred as a result of recent contact with milk? For example, so the case I already gave you, this has this happened because when the child went from breastfeeding to formula? Um, is there a repeated um, event in the children with IgE-mediated uh, milk allergy where they're not presenting with the symptoms in the skin where it's actually vomiting or um, Acute abdominal pain that's occurring an hour or so after exposure, which could still be Ig mediated. um, Is there a relationship between exposure and the subsequent uh, symptoms? So that those are the main things. And I think for the non-Ig mediated, it just has to be in the back of your mind. If the child's uh, got signs of um, other IgE mediated problems, like the commonest one would be eczema, you're going to be that bit more suspicious that this might be an IgE-mediated response that you're seeing um, in, in a child. It may, if it isn't in the skin, it might be further down the gut. So that's, those are the sort of questions you would ask. Uh, you obviously want to know if the child is well or unwell, if they're failing to thrive, then you need to think about referring elsewhere. Uh, has there been a evidence that the child's symptoms are worse when the fresh milk is given versus when the baked milk is given? That would be an, another interesting question you could ask.
0: That's great advice. Thank you. And are there any predisposing risk factors that we would need to be mindful of
1: for the IgE-mediated uh, children? Risk factors. Where do you start? Okay. First of all, a family history of uh, atopic disease, which should be routine part of your history taking. So that's um, hay fever, and um, eczema, asthma, uh, any other member of the family with an immediate um, food allergy. Uh, Be aware that bee stings are not um, in the same category. Bee sting allergy is completely different. This is an allergy to injected substance. It's not an allergy to mucosal exposure, which normal A to B is is a mucosal problem. So the the bee avoids the mucosa. It sticks the, the venom directly into the body. And so those children with bee allergy, which is not common in children anyway, but yeah, they do have, them. they're commonly not atopic at all. They don't have any of the other symptoms. So a family history of atopy would be a, a one thing uh, that would make you think about this in particular. Um, uh, Caesarean section, as you're probably aware, stuffs up the early microbiome. And we know the early microbiome plays an important role in immunolo- immunologically setting um, the, the baby's uh, propensity for a whole lot of things and so the caesarean section babies are more likely to have allergies. Um, The children who've been exposed to antibiotics early in life are also more likely to develop uh, symptoms of allergy because again you interfere with the microbiome. Any other history questions? Um, I think those are the main ones. Something else might come into better. I should just add while I'm talking uh, that two, two interesting facts, one of which only just hit me yesterday, and that is iron deficiency anemia has almost disappeared. Mm. In general practice, I think you'll probably find the same thing, but we used to see hundreds of iron deficient children. Mm. In fact, I did big research on iron deficiency. I couldn't do the research anymore. It has disappeared. What has led this thing to disappear? And I'm musing about it, and I don't know the answer, but I wonder if delayed introduction of solids and
0: formula is the reason. Hmm. There was a big study
1: there's a big study done here in Wellington in the late 70s before I arrived. There's an American who was very interested in iron deficiency and he looked at the stools of, of children in the Wellington region and he showed that they were they had blood in their stools. And he linked it at that stage already to early exposure to what was then raw milk protein because babies were getting just doorstep milk at that time in the 70s. And um, I wonder if that was the the one end of the spectrum, and that, and that actually children have been subtly losing iron from their guts uh, as a result of exposure to foods to which they were not yet ready. So that was just an aside.
0: Earlier on, when we were talking, you mentioned the investigations that you would conduct in your own clinic. But as GP, what investigation should we be thinking about in primary care?
1: I think if the child has delayed onset uh, milk protein intolerance, you should refer and I think probably you should refer, if you can, you can, in your referral letter, I think you should say, can you please see if this can be seen by a pediatrician with a special interest in allergy? Because we go back to that constipation case. Uh, I was at a Sydney meeting where all the pediatricians from, well not all the pediatricians, huge numbers of pediatricians from all over Australia and also from New Zealand go once a year to have a update on um, common things. And a guy there presented a case of a child with um, exactly that constipation associated with protein and I would say 99% of the audience said I've never heard of that is that real mm. and I'd heard of it because I was an interest but so and these are all very experienced GPs and uh, sorry pediatric consultant pediatrician so I think that that's one you should be referring and giving a suggestion so obviously the partners has to decide how they um, allocate patients but that is one that I think should either go to a Pediatrician with allergy, or possibly a pediatrician with major interest in gastroenterology, who would also see that sort of thing. And the other children with the immediate uh, response reactions, I think that <clears throat> if you have access to a good quality skin testing service, then that's a really straightforward thing, non painful, 15 minutes, dirt cheap. Don't start sticking needles in the children and doing RAS testing because, first of all, it's a delayed result. Secondly, there are the level of false positives and false negatives with a blood test is much higher because essentially you're interested in knowing what's happening at the surface. As I said, ATP is a surface problem. And if you do blood test, you're not measuring the surface, you're measuring the smoke, the smoke that's generated by the fire. But mm-hmm. if you actually use the skin, you're actually looking at the fire. And also when you do a skin test, it's really dramatic for the family. They can see this big swelling, this, wow, look at that. Whereas you send them a blood test. It's a six. Oh yeah, what's a six <laughs> Okay. So, and the other thing is if you have a friendly skin test service, you could say to them, could you, are you willing to do skin testing against fresh milk? Now there is some neurosis about this fresh milk, there's thing, and I'll tell you a little story there again. So <clears throat> some years ago, we were doing some research and uh, yeah, we were doing research, and that involved skin testing uh, with fresh milk. And uh, somebody talked to a microbiologist, and the microbiologist said, You can't do that. And I think at some time I had put some milk into a blood culture bottle and sent it to the laboratory, and I got this hysterical phone call what is it? Who is this patient? They are infected with bacillus cereus. They're going to die. This is terrible. And then I said, well, actually, it was about the milk, and it's perfectly healthy. And at that stage in my stupidity, I thought that when milk was pasteurized, it was sterile. But of course, it's completely filthy. You know, milk is full of germs. Mm. and They're probably very healthy germs. And I have a secret stuff that I'm not going to tell you. There's some really recent research that's really, really interesting. But at some other stage, stage, I might tell you a bit more about what milk contains that's really interesting. But, but anyway, so laboratories might say, I can't skin test against fresh milk because it contains germs and the baby might get infected. Forget it, it's completely safe, it's completely safe. And it's a standard part of allergic uh, investigation. We call it the prick-prick method, where we take, say, a fresh fruit and we prick the fruit and the fruit goes ow. And then we take the juice out of the fruit and we prick the baby or the child and we demonstrate a reaction. And some allergens, you cannot use the allergens out of a skin test container because they are not fresh enough. Some children, for example, only react to a fresh fruit, like a fresh strawberry. And if the strawberry is a bit older, like it's been sitting in the, in the, in the, uh, in the shop for a while, the allergen disappears. So, if you can get the laboratory to do fresh milk as well, which they probably will refuse, that's really helpful. But even for a good going milk allergy of IgE type, the allergen will work perfectly well. Make sure that they also test against other alternative milks. Uh, in particular, they should test for soy. Now, we don't at present recommend soy in the first six months of life. Uh, I'll go on record as saying I think it's been a gross uh, overreaction but there we are it's an international thing that they say soy early on leads to high rates of soy allergy get them to do the test against soy because of the child six months of age or more then that will be the recommended alternative formula do not be tempted with goat's milk goat's milk is goats and cows are very closely related and if they're allergic to cow's milk they're gonna be allergic to goat's milk if it's the immediate allergy type if it's the lady allergy type no they may be tolerant but you're going to refer those patients somewhere else anyway because you can't diagnose it with a skin test. If the skin test comes back grossly positive for milk, you don't actually have to refer that patient. You can say either confirm the diagnosis of milk allergy in your child. And we need to now follow the process of giving them an alternative to cow's milk protein.
0: Okay. So on that point, your best practice tips to select the most appropriate infant formula for someone who's been diagnosed with cow's milk protein allergy.
1: Now, I have two responses to this. The one response is the standard response following all the guidelines of uh, the health department, which is that children who've had a allergic reaction to calcium protein should be offered a hydrolysate. And at the present, the only hydrolysate that's available on the market is Pepti Junior. There is another one which is coming or maybe has just arrived. In fact, there are probably two more products very much on the way, which may alter my approach towards this. But Pepti Junior was not designed as a hypoallergenic formula. Pepti Junior is designed as a formula for babies with malabsorption, short gut syndrome, those sort of things. It's a pre-digested formula for babies who have digestive problems. We're not dealing with digestive problems here, we're dealing with an immunological problem. The answer of course is that we shouldn't be using peptidin, we should be using a proper protein hydrolysate where the protein has been uh, actually digested down to a level that the immune system is unlikely to recognize it. And then they usually work. They usually work. If we don't have that and we have only got peptidinium, well, as a GP, I think you're supposed to still give the patient some and make them sick. And then when they're sick on Pepper junior say, no, they're sick on paper junior, we better go to something else. And then the answer then is you have a choice of, uh, in New Zealand, the only other things we have is a choice of different elemental formulae. And the elemental formulae, of course, there is nothing in an elemental formula that a baby can get allergic to because um, all the protein has been um, added artificially. It's just a bunch of amino acids. There's actually no protein at all. It's just amino acids. I would just put a little aside in there that I've actually talked to the companies who make these products and they haven't given me a satisfactory answer. And that is going back to my microbiome hat to try and encourage the right healthy germs inside your gut. Those germs that uh, like to live there early and that we know are very good for you, uh, they digest lactose. Um, That's one of their main sources of nourishment. And these um, elemental formulae don't have any lactose in them at all. They've got glucose in them. Hmm. And uh, I don't know what effect, that. and I don't anyone has studied what effect does that have on the infant microbiome to give a baby a formula that can, contains no lactose at all. I wonder if they end up with a relatively sterile gut, it's just it going to be a really interesting study. We should do it to see what happens. But anyway, that's what we do. We put them, if they don't tolerate the hydrolysate, we put them on a elemental diet with a view to um, every so often retrialing. Um, something that contains um, milk protein. And normally I wouldn't go back to going to formula. Normally I would say, look, look let's try this child. At that stage, they're usually on a bit solid. So let's try them on something that, that's that got some baked milk in it. If you're going to remove a major source of calcium from a child's diet, and for example, you put them on soy, soy is not such a good source of calcium. Even the soy formula, the calcium is rather poorly absorbed. If a child's going on to a different formula and if they're using formula or milk as their main source of calcium, you do need to think about that and families really really appreciate seeing a dietitian. Mm. Dieticians are wonderful people they walk on water as far as I'm concerned they have enormous experience they have enormous practical experience in a way a GP doesn't have about healthy feeding and healthy feeding habits and um, <clears throat> it is my ex- experience that the vast majority that I see Uh, even with quite complex food allergies, the GPs have never referred to dietitian. And it may have something to do with cost and the fact that it's not available in the public sector, but I still think that the family should be offered that even if they have to pay for it.
0: That's a good practice point for us to um, reflect on there. If we look at the practicalities, mum is asking if she can buy these types of infant formulary at the supermarket or does she need a prescription? What do we tell her along with advice about costs?
1: Okay, so if the child is over six months of age, they're going to go into soy formula if they're clearly confirmed to be milk protein allergic. Soy formula can be bought with a prescription and a subsidy number from a chemist. It costs more than going to the supermarket and taking the soy formula off the shelf. And the soy formulas on the, on the shelf are exactly the same, so I just tell the families to go and buy it off the shelf. It's hardly a difference in price from mm. uh, soy and, and milk protein.
0: And I'm interested to know, in your experience, what worries do parents have about um, a child with cow's milk protein allergy? You told us the story of the dad who was quite upset because of the delay in diagnosis. But yeah. what, what, what experience do you have around this? I think the
1: main thing that upsets them is delay in diagnosis and the fact it wasn't raised early on and why they'd gone through all this before anybody ever considered this as a problem. The rate, the rate of cows milk protein allergy, IgE mediated is somewhere in the region of probably three to 5% of the population of infants. So that is one in 20, it's not rare. You should be, you know, it's much more common than silent reflux. So you should be thinking about it in a baby who presents with symptoms I are not going to do any harm for removing it for a week or two and see what happens. So, so that delay is the main thing that upsets families. Then they also, they also worry about, my child is allergic to milk protein and they're going to be allergic to other things now as well. And the problem there is that you don't do an extensive range of skin tests to other foods. You say to the families, they could be. And I say to families, you know, I have tested your child, for this, that and the other, but I haven't tested snake or monkey or shark, it's possible your child is allergic to one of those. And I'm not going to test it, I'm just when they get a new food, introduce a little bit first. And depending on the severity of the action, I might say, just put some on the liver first of all and wipe it away and have a look. Five minutes afterwards, with the big wheels inside the mouth, uh, probably best to stay away from that for the moment. Mm. I think going back to this early introduction of solids, the other thing that worries me about this present. New dogma is that I think we have generated yet another way to make parents feel guilty. They will now you know say it was my fault because I held off I followed the health department advice and only gave breast milk to six months of age and now my child, at seven months of age, had the first episode of peanuts and had an allergic reaction it 's my fault. I should have done it earlier. I should have listened. I have letters like that from families all the time. My plunking say says I should wait till six months, but, but the media now says I should give the stuff really early. You know? And I think it was that the new policy has been introduced without enough data and with no long-term data. Now, I was at a meeting, uh, I'm going sideways again, but that's right. I was at a meeting last two weeks ago in Rotterdam, which is a, called a DOHAD meeting. So that's the developmental origins of health and disease. And there's a huge amount of data showing what you do to your babies inside the womb in the first 100 days of life actually has an effect for the rest of your life. You can really affect your long-term life. And there was a lot on obesity because of course, that actually in the Western world is is actually probably one of the most serious, serious diseases. They showed that breastfeeding a baby really does reduce the prevalence of obesity in adulthood. And what they showed was, if you take the breast milk and you express it into a bottle and then give it to the baby, it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. Exclusive breastfeeding has to be from the breast. Now, why is that? Well, there was some very interesting discussion about that because you may be aware that there is a different caloric content of the breast milk early versus late. We call it fore milk and hind milk. Mm. And actually, if we have a premature baby that's failing to thrive, we want to give them more, in the way, calories. We tell the mother, do something else with the full milk, wait, and just give us the hind milk. That's what we want to give the baby. It's got much more fat in it and it's higher calorie content. And what the theory is, is that the baby, as it breastfeeds, it gradually gets this high calorie milk and it says, oh, I'm full. Mm. Can't say any more of that. I'm coming off. Now, mum expresses this milk. She puts it in a bottle. It takes a half an hour to an hour to express this stuff. It's sore. It's hard work. Somebody else, well, mum, has now got this bottle of milk that has been carefully expressed. It's now a mixture of four and hind milk, so the baby doesn't get any messages to stop feeding. But not only that, there's still 20 mils left in that bottle. There is this feeling that you have to get the baby to take the whole lot. What effect is that having on the baby's satiety messages. We know obese people have lost their satiety message. They don't know when they're full anymore. They keep eating because the message is not good. Are we introducing that by the way we feed babies early that they actually don't know, I'm full, it's time to stop. And when you put the milk in a bottle, do that. The other thing we know, babies whose parents expose the baby to their own saliva have less allergies. Now, how do we know that? Well, the German group were the first to do it. We have now confirmed it and the paper is about to come out. If you get a mother or father who puts a dummy in their baby's mouth and they lick it before they put it in the mouth because the baby has dropped it out, they're putting saliva from their own mouths in the baby's mouth. If they wash it, they're not. The families who lick the dummy before they put it back in the mouth have highly significantly less allergies than the families where they wash the dummy. The Japanese did a study about 15 years ago. I wish I could be part of the study. It took a group of couples and they got them to kiss. And the one group of couples they were told, no deep kissing, only lip contact. And the other group they said, full French kissing, lots of (laughs) saliva contact. And they showed highly significant immunological differences. Women who are exposed to their men's semen in their vagina have a much lower prevalence of preeclampsia and other immunological disturbances because it is thought, and it's been now demonstrated in the cervical samples, they can actually see what happens, that you are desensitizing the mother to the father's sperm, but you're also exposing the mother to the father's microbiome coming out with his, with his seminal flu. And these things are really important in resetting the immune system. So, It is also very likely that when a baby sucks from a breast, it's getting bacteria from the mother's breasts that are good. We know there are bacteria in the breast. When it goes in the bottle, who knows what you do with it. I've just gone to the bottle, you probably freeze it. I don't know what you do with it. It's not fresh anymore. So maybe the microbiome there is different. And I believe if we get went back in time to when babies were first given solids, and actually there are people who still remember this because they remember their grandparents doing this, the way that solids were introduced to babies in times gone by when we were all Aboriginals and moving from place to place, the mothers and all fathers chewed it and put it in the baby's mouth. They didn't have forks with them and food processes and so on and so forth. They had stuff that the baby had to be able to swallow. Other species do the same thing. They expose their babies to the their microbiome in their mouth. And I believe without having any evidence, that that's probably another thing that was immunologically
0: setting things for the baby. So what's the prognosis? Can an infant actually become tolerant to cow's milk protein?
1: Uh, Yeah, of course. Um, Now, when I was first a junior doctor in paediatrics, one of my colleagues, one of the other junior doctors decided to present a case of cow's milk allergy. And there were four consultants, senior consultants, all very experienced. And all four of them said there is no such thing there's milk allergy, these are just neurotic mothers. Now that's 1975. Mm. So in that time we have gone from it being so rare that four consultant pediatricians have never seen a case to now 60% of Australian children have got positive skin tests, 60%. It's now normal to have a positive skin test in Australia. They have the highest rates of food allergy in the world in Australia. And we're not far behind. So this is a moving platform. So when you say, can a child become tolerant to calcium protein? 50 years ago, I would say, well, there is no such thing. Now I have to say, well, yes, but I'm not so sure anymore. And so we do know the children that are tolerant to the baked milk are much more likely to outgrow a milk allergy than the ones who remain intolerant. We know the children who have multiple allergies are much more likely to remain intolerant. We know the children with bad eczema are much more likely to be intolerant. We know the children with bad family histories of allergy are much more likely to remain intolerant. But allowing for all those things, the majority of children with milk protein allergy, whether it's IgE-mediated or non-IgE-mediated, are likely to outgrow their allergy. Somewhere in the region, usually between the age of two and three. Mm. But in my allergy clinic, I'm seeing more and more and more of children that are not outgrowing their milk allergy. And and some of them, they're 12. I have to say that I'm sorry, you're never ever going to probably be able to tolerate milk protein.
0: And in conclusion, your take-home message.
1: My take-home message, in conclusion, think about it. Don't make a diagnosis of silent reflux. Think about milk protein intolerance or milk protein allergy. And remember that there are two sorts. And that some of the children may have this problem, even though they don't have immediate symptoms.
0: Thank you, Toshton. It's been a pleasure talking to you today. Thank
1: you.